Welcome to Embedded Edge with Knitting, a podcast that brings to life the stories behind today's embedded systems, technologies, and products. It's the show where you'll hear from both engineers and executives on some of the most topical news and most pressing challenges in the world of embedded system design. Here's your host, Editor-in-Chief of Embedded.com, Nitin Dahad. Hello. Welcome to this edition of Embedded Edge with Nitin. In a recent briefing, I heard an executive talk about things being cloudified. The context is more and more connected devices are moving more and more intelligence from the cloud to the edge. As Remy El-Wazan, president of the Microcontrollers and Digital ICs group at SD Microelectronics, said in that briefing, much of the industry is moving toward an era of the cloud-connected intelligent edge. Al-Wazan said we can expect to talk a lot more about autonomous connected devices that end up being cloudified, meaning that they are not only connected, but where there's a continuum of compute capability between the cloud and the edge. To highlight this, he describes an industrial application scenario where a sensor can help identify unusual behavior and prevent failures. When a sensor in an endpoint detects that something is not right, for a deeper study, it needs a way to connect back to the cloud for more detailed pattern analysis on a much higher sample rate. So the platform might have various stages of compute from the very edge to the cloud for different levels of analysis to ultimately prevent something from failing. Hence, he said, so when I'm talking about cloudification, I really mean it's a combination of connectivity coupled with compute that will be distributed from the very edge to the cloud. It's happening today, and I think it's going to be a huge wave. Well, the theme of this year's Embedded World Conference takes us beyond embedded intelligence, which has been the talk of previous years, to intelligent, connected, and embedded, as the organizers of the conference have put it. And the continuum of compute from edge to cloud is an important part of this. One of the aspects of this is ensuring safety and security, especially in mission-critical and safety-critical systems. In this episode, we address some of those aspects with Pavan Singh, Vice President of Product Management at Link Software Technologies, and Dirk Ackerman, Marketing Manager at Sega. In the first segment, Pavan Singh explains separation kernels for mission-critical te edge technology and the importance of being able to run a certified workload right next to a cloud-connected workload to deliver machine learning technologies for critical infrastructure and automotive at the edge. He also explains more about the company's announcement earlier this year that its Mosaic platform now supports sub-deployment of Google Anthos Bare Metal at the mission-critical edge. This means an entire Kubernetes cluster can be run locally in as little as one hardware system at the edge, with Lynx-enabled virtual air gapping providing isolation between the different parts of the system. In the second segment, Dirk Ackerman explains the importance of deterministic behavior in safety-critical systems and how Sega's introduction of runtime libraries enabling deterministic behavior when running C++ will open up the possibility of using C++ in many more safety-critical applications. 
So let's head to our first guest, Pavan Singh of Link Software Technologies. Hello, I'm uh, here with uh, Pavan Singh of Link Software Technologies, who's going to tell us a little bit about uh, the latest development uh, with um, their support for Google Anthos. Pavan, hello. Hello, thank you for having me. Yeah, you made an announcement. Tell us what it is. Absolutely. Um, so so uh, Lynx is a premier provider of, of technologies that we call the mission critical edge technologies. And, and one of the key technologies there we will talk about today is something called separation kernel. Mm-hmm. And it's the, uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's how we create, how we enable security at the hardware level for systems. We'll talk a little bit more about that. The, one of the key aspects of separation kernel technology is to be able to provide the level of security that's demanded by today's both security compliance and safety and, and safety certification. And, and what that means is being able to um, run a certified workload right next to a cloud connected workload. Um, so in that context, we will also talk about how um, how Lynx is enabling the delivery of machine learning technologies right at that critical infrastructure avionics and automotive um, um, by, by enabling them two things. One is enabling Kubernetes infrastructure at the edge. And second, ensuring that there is complete uh, separation isolation of that infrastructure from anything else uh, that is running mission critical systems. For example, the, the auto operations of the car or operations of a factory and, and getting the best of both worlds wherein the uh, the machine learning and the and machine learning algorithms want to get the data and then provide the insight, but then the operations are are, are handled by local systems. Part of what you've done is you've enabled through the partnership with Google to uh, deliver that uh, right at the edge. Is that right? That's correct. And and a, and a channel to the cloud, but a secure channel to the cloud. That's correct. So so the. The challenges with we've seen a lot of lot of progress in the capabilities of the machine learning learning algorithms in the last five to ten years. Mm-hmm. So what that means is that now the machine learning technology is at a place where uh, when there are less less false positives, and so so now it is it's reliable and it is better than a human doing the same job. Mm-hmm. Because at times these tasks are very mundane and humans don't want to do them. So now the challenge is how do you deploy the machine learning algorithms at these very, very uh, safety critical and security critical points where the everything is kind of very well orchestrated and everything is being monitored. So what we've done is we have packaged the machine learning and the operational systems together um, and provide the platform so uh, operator can, can deploy their, for example, PLC, a controller, and sort of a, a sensor, and along with the with a cloud workload, the cloud workload doesn't have access to anything else on the on the on the floor, but it can, it has there's a, a secure channel back to the cloud wherein the machine learning algorithms can be I can be updated. So there is the best of both worlds about keeping uh, everything secure locally, but then but then carving out a set of resources 
that can where a cloud workload can land and do its job, but not affect anything else in a potentially opening up to more security vulnerabilities kind of a case. In other parts of the system, you mean? Yes. Okay. And just tell us a little bit about the relationship with Google uh, Cloud. Uh, what is this something that they sort of wanted to do, or is it something you said you know this is really useful, or your customers are asking for it? Yeah, we had uh, we had uh, last year we announced a partnership with the BHIT out of Italy, and that was focused on computer vision based use cases on the manufacturing floor. And and Google heard about that and reached out and because Google is a is the leader in providing AI capabilities and and, and, and cloud capabilities among all the other cloud players. So he started saying, hey, we would love to figure out whether we can play, we can, we can do something together. That's where we together um, ourselves link software, Google Cloud, and a Google Google Cloud partner, 66 degrees. Uh, came together to put together a, a, a solution that, um, based on Link's mosaic that then that enables the delivery of Google Cloud capabilities to the edge. And the the partner 66 degrees is the will be helping the customers leverage the most of Google Cloud, whereas Links provides the edge infrastructure, mission critical edge infrastructure to land at the edge. Okay, and uh, did that involve a, a lot of work? I mean, uh, in, in software development, you don't know whether it's just a simple API or whether there's there's a lot more involved. Yeah, there was, uh, there was actually, most of the time we spent was on ensuring that what we have developed um, is usable for multiple use cases. Okay. And so, so a lot of the systems, a lot of the, we didn't have to do a lot of integration at the product level. Okay. But what we were um, were working on, because what happens in most of these use cases um, that one, typically any of the operational leaders are conservative people. They want to deploy a machine learning algorithm and, and see what the value is and then expand. The challenge is that, in, that deploying the first machine learning algorithm can be, can be a bit of a a bit of a um, uphill task, mm. and so a lot of the folks don't benefit from it. What we've done is made sure that they can deploy their um, first use case very quickly and she see the value, and then and then and then expand to other use cases. Where what I mean by that is, as an example of of the the partnership was around quality use cases. Mm. That means kind of using computer vision, looking at a part. And, and saying whether it meets the uh, quality specs or other defects that that it cannot be de- detected any other way. And the value there is that you can start looking at looking for one type of defects, mm-hmm. but then you can start there and if the results are good, you expand to other types of defects. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where the real value is that if you you start once you land and then and then as the value um, is is uh, is clear, the use cases end up expanding. So, in terms of that value, um, uh, I think I'm not sure if I heard a claim that you know, visual defects can be reduced 10x by this solution. How does a 
what's the expectation of return on investment for a customer sort of deploying something like this now, now that you've done that work? Yeah, I've heard, I've heard from customers that they expect anywhere from 5x to 10x, at a, just, just as a start. And the value they're seeing is that a lot of these, um, we talk about quality, quality and quality inspection, a lot of these tasks are pretty mundane. So if you think about a part coming out and looking for, a, are there any kind of dents on it or pinches on it? That's a pretty difficult task for a human being to do. Mm. Uh, think about me or me, uh, you or I sitting on the assembly line or production line and just, just doing it part the entire day. That would drive us nuts. Now, our parents did that in the 60s and 70s. That's correct. And, 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 and that's where the, you, you don't want to go there because that's not what humans are meant to do. Yeah. So, so because now, um, and then what happened is that in, in, the, in the absence of, uh, of people who, who were willing to do that task, what uh, most operators did is they took a sampling of the parts and then said, hey, how, what are the defects like? But the prediction quality of that sample isn't very good. Mm. But now what happens is that with deployment of computer vision on the production floor, it does take some time to tweak the algorithm, which the lighting is correct and the camera is correct. Once done, you're pretty much looking at every part. Mm. And so now you can, you can process the part separately and, and you can know right away whether the defects are, are increasing or decreasing and even and the optimizations can be can be done very shortly and the results measured. Okay. So it's created a sort of a feedback loop that just wasn't possible in the past. How do customers access it? Is this something that uh, you'll sort of make available for your, your existing customers or how, do, how does somebody deploy something like this? Yeah, yeah. what happens is that uh, we, what we announced was that we announced uh, support for for um, for a couple of hardware systems mm-hmm. and and all the customer has to do is procure that get the get the links mosaic package from us okay. and then and really take their existing um, camera system plc system and then and then deploy a google cloud kubernetes on top of it so that's I me mean, to to somebody that uh, to us it, it took us about a week or two and that's it and you're up and running the nice part is on the google side they have automated the creation of the machine learning inference inference uh inferencing models okay so so that that means that once a customer is set up with all of this then the images uh, the photos of the parts can be uploaded to the cloud and, and a model can be created in a day or so. So the, the time from which an operator decides to deploy and, 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 and deploy it to the time they're actually deploying it is pretty short. Okay. And so that means they can they can have an advanced uh, manufacturing facility where they're trying these things out, see the results and very quickly expand. So it's a, it's a, it's a pretty seamless process from that perspective. Okay. Uh, compare that to the past where uh, they had to every single time figure out uh, either deploy a completely new system or figure out how to get all these pieces to talk to each other and what's the right, which are the right technology pieces that need to be there 
for them to solve for the use case. So there's a lot of the um, barriers to adoption that have been solved for so that, so that they can go from thinking about it to then deploying it and seeing the business results. And then last question then, yeah, so you talked about talking to each other. Now, what about uh, the security uh, uh, considerations? Yeah, what happens, what, what uh, Links Mosaic does is that there is two things. One is that it provides, um, on the same system, it provides isolation between different um, operating systems and workloads. That means um, if a Kubernetes is deployed at the edge, that's isolated uh, from a, a PLC or a camera system, in this case, for computer vision use case. And so, but what we also do is that we provide secure channels between these workloads with, with, with a very, very low uh, security footprint so that so the, the data such as images or insights can be, can be, can be transferred uh, either to this inference model or from the inference model to some sort of uh, actuator like controller. Okay. Well, um, Pavan, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Next, we talk to Dirk Ackerman of Sega. I'm here with Dirk Ackerman, Head of Marketing at Sega. Hello, Dirk. Hello, Tim. How are you? So um, you've recently introduced the C++ library that enables deterministic behavior. Can you tell us a little bit about context of why that's necessary? Yeah, so when you write C++ programs, um, so the C++ compiler sometimes does some things in the background. So sometimes um, it requires to run the heap manager to um, do some memory operations. And the uh, heap manager implemented in standard implementations is not deterministic. So when that happens, your C++ application no longer behaves deterministically. There are applications um, where this is actually critical because you need to predict the runtime length of your code. For example, in closed loop algorithms where you need to set your parameters um, according to the length of the calculations. And what we've done is basically rewrite the whole heap manager in a way that it is operating faster and deterministic. And now when you write a C++ application with, for example, a digital, um, digital control loop, now you can expect the code to run with the same deterministic length every time. So you don't have to um, modify your um, algorithm to, to accommodate for the different runtime length. Big advantage in those digital control loops, for example. And that's important, I mean, for automotive or safety critical applications? Yeah. For example, if you have the um, stabilizer in, in the car, that's usually a digital control loop. Or when you run a machine where it's important that the conveyor belt always runs at the same speed, there you have a control loop. Mm. When you have a digital control loop, there you have, there you have then the, um, the sensor, then you have the calculation, and then you have the output. And the distance between sensor reading and output has to be exactly the same. Mm. Otherwise, you need to modify the algorithm. And sometimes you have you don't even manage to um, create an algorithm that 
can cope with the um, variable length of the computation time. This opens up some applications that could not use uh, C++ before. So, so I can elaborate on that. Um, any application where you use the digital control loop, for example, oh, okay. you have this um, dependency on the um, runtime length, and this has to be deterministic to um, calculate algorithm properly. There are some, some safety applications uh, when it comes, for example, when you hit the emergency stop. In some cases, you cannot just stop the engine, but you have to um, run down the engine smoothly. And when you have such kind of application, any delay and any non-deterministic behavior basically could kill people. Mm. So in this in such application, it's really important to have this deterministic behavior. And how does this compare with other runtime libraries? Um, I think you said, yeah, you, you, you hand-coded most of it, so the assembly language, it's very small. Are there any sort of other key sort of uh, advantages of uh, you know, what else is out there? The, the most standard libraries are um, derived from standard libraries that um, are intended to be used with standard operating systems on a PC and running on, on a PC operating system like Linux or Windows or Mac. Mm. And so our so our runtime library is specifically designed to um, cope with the um, restrict or with the resource constraints you face on microcontroller-based systems. So okay. that's one thing where we focus, put focus on. And um, to, to accommodate for that, we've um, basically written more as much of it in assembler as possible and focus on, on those operations um, that actually um, have a big impact. So when you have operations that are used not as regularly as others, you probably might get away with not programming an assembly, but um, there are others that are used all over the place and there you would optimize the thing um, as much as possible. And that's what we've done basically with our runtime libraries. We started with a C runtime library before, and once we've done that, we saw the um, implications on the C++ stuff and um, transferred most of the stuff into the C++ library. And one of the effects we had was the rewritten heap manager, which is um, yeah, basically the, the most central part on, when it comes to memory management. Um, when you write something in C, you don't have random memory operations because you completely control when you have a memory operation. Mm. And you do that in C++ with the object-oriented setup of the um, language. Um, the object-oriented object part of the language um, sometimes generates memory operations. And those memory operations um, rely on the heap manager. And there, we come back to what I've said before. Uh, when you use C++ um, and you don't, you have a normal heap manager, then you cannot rely on the deterministic behavior of your function. And this runs on ARM and RISC-V? It runs on ARM and on RISC-V. So we've, um, we've been able to um, publish both um, variations of the library in short succession. So we started with the implementations within our Embedded Studio IDE as a factory standard with, with that library. And then um, shortly after, we also published the libraries um, extracted from the image studio and so people can basically purchase the library for themselves or the, sil the silicon vendors um, are able to actually use that library within their own tool chains. When, when people um, create software for embedded systems, um, many times I've seen and, and 
actually seen in our own development because we use our um, IDE to develop the jailing, for example. Mm. There are so many things that you can optimize in your workflow. Um, that people should um, once in a while um, reconsider their workflow because it um, can have a big impact on the turnaround times of the development, mm. can have big impact on the size of your code. So right now um, we produce the smallest code for our debug probes, for example, using our own toolchain. So we're, we've not optimized it for some things like Cormac or so, but we've optimized it on real-life applications. And those are things that people should look for. Okay. Well, good. Well, Dirk, thank you very much. You're welcome. So that brings us to the end of this episode. That was Embedded Edge with Nitin, and I'm Nitin Dahad. Thanks for listening. 